Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question, his choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then, as Hemingway writes, go on from there. Today's special guest is Craig Johnson. Craig Johnson is the New York Times best-selling author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels, which are the basis for Longmire, the hit Netflix original drama. Among the countless awards he has won are the Western Writers of America's Spur Award, Library Journal's Best Mystery of the Year, Spirit of Steamboat was selected by the Wyoming State Library as the inaugural One Book Wyoming. Craig Johnson lives in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25. Craig, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's an honor. Craig, what is your one true sentence and why? Well, you know, there's always going to be a codicil that goes along, you know, with this type of a statement. And uh, mine is, is that you can't ask a writer like to to do something without them rewriting the rules. And uh, of course, you know, I did find myself doing a little bit of a rewrite on that question. Let's say it's a couple of sentences like that, but I think it kind of illustrates uh, one of the things I find um, truly amazing, you know, about uh, Hemingway's work and uh, kind of deals a little bit with that honesty that, uh, that he discusses. And uh, I'll just, I'll do the reading like that. And then we can begin the discussion. How's that sound? Great. It's um, actually uh, the epigraph from the beginning of the snows of Kilimanjaro, um, which was originally published in Esquire magazine in 1936. Kilimanjaro is a snow covered mountain, 19,710 feet high. And it is said to be the highest mountain in Africa. Its Western summit is called Masai, Nagaje Nagai the house of God. Close to the western summit, there is the dried and frozen carcass of a leopard. No one has explained what the leopard was seeking at that altitude. That is such a great epigraph. What does that epigraph say to you? Well, you know what? It's almost more what it doesn't say, like, you know, in many ways. Um, whenever someone, it's always interesting, you know, to, to do these kind of twenty twenty hindsight analysis, you know, on uh, on literary uh, excerpts that, you know, that we've read how many times? I mean, I, I shudder to think how many times I've read, you know, that particular short story. And, you know, you always have the the joy of trying to see what a, a, a newbie, what, you know, what, what would a virgin reader, you know, how would they approach this? How would they see this? And how different would they, you know, read this as opposed to the, the 127th time, you know, that you've read it like that. And uh, I, I, the thing I really enjoy about it is, is um, to be honest, is the ambiguity. Um, it, it, it's a statement. It's a strong statement. It gives you, you know, a ton of information, you know, right at the get go before you even start the short story. But it also leaves something to the imagination. And I think that that's one of the things about Hemingway's writing that a lot of people um, tend to overlook. Um, they always talk about the precision of his writing. They always talk about the direct quality of his writing. Um, he also did an awful lot of things where, you know, he would take a fact or he would take an emotion or a piece of dialogue, you know, or something and just toss it out there. 
you know, and let you make of that what you will. And that sounds relatively simple. It sounds like something, oh, I'm sure every writer does that. No, they don't. No, a lot of them, you know, don't have that kind of, uh, of courage, you know, to be quite honest. That's the term that I would use. Um, he was an absolutely, you know, courageous writer in the sense that, you know, that search for the honesty, that search for the truth, you know, he was willing to go out on that thin ice. And I think that that ambiguity is, you know, one of those thin ice, you know, periods for him. Um, we, of course, you know, I, at least, you know, I like to think, you know, that by the time we get to the end of the snows of Kilimanjaro, we know exactly what he meant. We know exactly what it was that he was talking about. But at the time of the initial reading, you don't. And I think that that's truly marvelous. So the first sentence of, of your reading, it's an absolute fact. It tells you how tall the mountain is to the foot. And then as you, as you were well, suggesting, it might be a little right. bit taller now, but yeah, absolutely. As you were suggesting, the last sentence is completely ambiguous and it, it, it suggests to the reader that it's the reader's responsibility to try to figure something out. I wanted to, I wanted to, ask you about what you were talking about when you said courageous writer. So what's the difference between a courageous writer and one without courage? Well, I think, you know, that he addresses that, you know, I mean, that's that truth and the honesty that you're shooting for. Um, and to take that even a step further, I mean, you could look at it as, you know, a, uh, I guess a universality of the human condition in many ways, like out of trying to find something, you know, within this story to find something within these words that going, that's going to resonate um, with not just a select group, but anybody that reads it. And, you know, to, you know, to have that, like, as I said, ambiguity, you know, within the writing, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a daring thing. You know, it's a daring thing to do. It's very simple to sit down and write the facts and nothing but the facts, you know, uh, and, and all of that like that. But, you know, to leave something to the reader's imagination, um, you're kind of like, you know, like I said, you know, and, and joining them to like step out into that thin ice along with you. And trust you, you know, uh, in the telling of this story. And I think that, you know, he was, uh, he was a master at that. He really, really was like that. And, um, you know, and you can talk about, you know, there are lots of like criticisms. I mean, whenever, you know, you bring up anybody, you know, of the stature of Hemingway, you know, you're going to have people that you know, will refer to that passage as pithy or, you know, predictable or things like that. It, it in no way is any of those things like that. Um, it's a marvelous way to start out that short story in, in so many ways. Um, and, you know, you can talk about the symbolism of it. You can talk about, oh, well, the snow means death or the leopard is, you know, the human condition, you know, or the, the spirit of humanity and all these different things. Yeah, it could be. It could also be a dead leopard up about 17,000, 19,000. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, th it opens it up for a lot of opportunities that, you know, like I say, you know, that that do require a certain amount of you know, literary courage. And I'll be honest with you, in my own personal experience along those lines, um, you know, I'm a big one for outlining. I'm a big one for outlining my work to death. Um, I tend to refer to what I write as socially responsible crime fiction in the sense that, you know, I'm trying to say something. There's a message I'm trying to get across, you know, with each one of the books. And I'm not just looking to, you know, pile up bodies like cordwood. You know, I've got something to say like that. And, um, you know, the, the difficulty being that, like, if you start out as a, as a, a big outliner, 
Um, sometimes you can easily get, you know, hidebound by those outlines. Sometimes, you know, you get to the point where, you know, boy, you're not going to get away from those outlines at all because that's out there in that, you know, deep water where there's no life preserver. And, you know, that's going to lure me out to somewhere I don't want to go like that. And what you discover is, is that the more you develop as a writer, the more you develop, um, in your abilities, like at the more steadfast and trustworthy you become to those improvisational moments that might present themselves. And, you know, what you discover is, is those improvisational moments, those moments where something sparks, something happens, something different, something you hadn't, you know, accounted for, um, take you somewhere where the writing really becomes something marvelous. Um, because you think you know what, you know, what your writing is about. You think you know what a book is about or a short story or anything like that. Um, you don't. You have a vague idea. And then you I don't care how much research you've done, how many outlines you've done and all of that until you get that 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 book out on the road. Um, you're going to, you're going to discover certain things along the way. And as you become more comfortable as a writer, I think you have that opportunity to take advantage of those. Well, is courage something for a writer that is, that the writer is born with? Is it something that the writer gains? And is it also something that a writer can lose? Like, for instance, if you look at your shelves full of books, do you, do you believe that you were more honest in one than in the other? Well, I think in answer to your question, uh, all three, of course, um, there's some you're born with, some you intuitively, you know, accomplish and acquire. And then, yeah, if you're not careful, it's like a, you know, it's like a sharp blade. Um, you can cut yourself with it like that, or it can get dull. You got to make sure your tools stay sharp. You've got to stay in there like that, or else, you know, you can become repetitious, um, predictable, formulaic, you know, all of those things. Um, I think it's even more of a danger whenever you write a series of books. Um, I've got, you know, 17 books, you know, I, mean, I think I'm working on the 17th book in the Walt Longmire series. And so there's always going to be a bit more of a uh, peril to uh, to fall victim, you know, to a lot of those things like that whenever, you know, you are, you're not exactly reinventing the wheel with every single book, you know, but you need to, you need to reinvent the wheel with every single book, you need to try and do something different with every single book. And if you're not doing that, then, you know, you're going to end up with a, a drawer full of, you know, dull knives like that. And uh, then after a certain period in time, you even forget how to sharpen them, and you don't know how to use those tools after a certain period in time. So I think it's, you know, one of those things where, you know, that's, that's part of that courage that we discussed you know, that you can't let your guard down, you know, you have to, you know, try um, and, and do something different, you know, every time, you know, or else, you know, why bother? Why bother writing at all? I'm thinking about what you said about the outline uh, as juxtaposed with the one true sentence concept. If you're going from an outline, is that more of a conceptual, structural, dramatic, plot-driven organizing principle, as opposed to seizing on, let's say, one sentence. I remember um, reading the introduction to Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, and he said that, I can't remember the first sentence about the blue pigs, you know, he, he got it, and then 900 pages later, there's the, there's the novel. <laughs> do, you, do you compose like that too, or is it mostly the first no, I, I think, you know, I, I, you know, far be it for me to, you know, to argue with Larry McMurtry. Like, <laughs> um, actually, uh, I, I have to tell you this quick story. I was actually at, uh, 
um, there was uh, the True West had a, a reception for him at the Tucson Book Festival, and he was there like that. And uh, I remember going into the reception, and I was the only one there with a cowboy hat on. And I said, "You've got to be kidding me! True West is a reception, Larry McMurtry, <laughs> Tucson, and, and Book Festival, and I'm the only one here with a cowboy hat on." Like, and so you know, I saw him. He came in. Everybody rushed over to him, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to leave this guy alone. You know, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm just not going to do it. And so you know, as the reception went on, like at about 20 minutes later, I see him standing at the end of the buffet table all by himself himself. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll go over and just say hi. Look at, and so I walked over and, and uh, you know, and I said, Mr. McMurtry, I just wanted to tell you, you know, how marvelous a writer I think you are like that. And uh, I got to tell you, Last Picture Show is one of the best novels, you know, ever written. It's just a marvelous, marvelous novel. And he grabbed onto my arm and he said, don't leave. And I said, okay, look at, and I'm looking around. I'm thinking, wonder what's going on. Look at, and he, I look back at him and he goes, I just don't want to have to talk about Lonesome Dove for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now to get back to your question like, you know, yeah i do i do think that in many ways it's much more uh you know you know you use it as a map you use yeah. it as a map you know but there are going to be opportunities you know to to you know disregard that map you know you yeah. keep it in the glove box just in case you get lost and can't remember what you know what was the meaning of this book why did, why was i writing this you know and what's the purpose of all of these pages and words and all of that you know but i do think that you know the day-to-day part you know, the part where you sit down and look into that vast expanse, you know, of uh, of whiteness, that Arctic, uh, uh, you know, tundra that stretches out before you, which can be just as intimidating, you know, as a glacier um, and uh, or a snow capped peak. Like, I think um, you really, you know, you have to attack those as a moment to moment basis. Like, and so, um, you know, yeah, you can make all the preparations in the world and then get ready, you know, because things are going to change along the way. And and that's good. That's really good, you know, because it. Uh, you know, like I said, it challenges you. It makes you, you know, have to rise to the occasion on a day-to-day basis, on a hour-to-hour basis, on a moment-to-moment basis, on a sentence basis, on a word basis. What part did Hemingway play in your life as a reader, uh, as a student of literature? Oh, there's so many. There's so many things that I can, you know, kind of like, you know, you know, lay the laurels at his feet like that. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's so difficult like that because I, I, I do a lot of uh, library events, you know, and uh, educational events here in Wyoming. And uh, one of the things I do, I'm a big believer in libraries and reading. And so one of the things that I have is, is that the only honorarium that I require from library events here in Wyoming is a six pack of Rainier beer um, cans preferred like that. But uh, you know, that, you know, to me is, you know, I, I'm always talking to those librarians and talking to the teachers and everything. And they always talk about how difficult it is to get, you know, young men to read these days, how difficult it is to get, you know, boys to read like that. And I, I, I never really had that problem like that because I, I came from a family of readers. You know, I mean, our idea of hell in the Johnson household was to not have a stack of books within easy reach. Um, you know, I'm, I may be the only rancher in Wyoming who has a copy of the dancing Wooly Masters sliding around on the dash of his pickup truck. You know? And so, you know, I, you know, for me, that's a life preserver like that because I mean, those scattered little moments that you have, you know, where you can read, um, they make them, you know, so much more worthwhile like that. And, you know, for me, even though I was, you know, a reader who came from a family of readers, you know, Hemingway's short stories, you know, the Nick Adams stories like that were, you know, an access point. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, the old man and the, and the sea. I mean, all of those like that, you know, were these wonderful stories, you know, that had some muscle to them like that, that had some tendons to them, you know, and, uh, you know, you could read those like that. And it really felt like, you know, he was kind of speaking to, you know, you as a young male. 
And, you know, I think that that, you know, that's a wonderful thing. Like not to say that he alienates himself and is, you know, completely, you know, removed from any other, you know, form of human life like that. But, you know, he was kind of a bulging bicep, you know, in the literary world of silk scarves, you know, which is you know kind of a nice thing to have happen, you know, every once in a while. Um, so I think there um, and then just the precision, you know, the precision of the work, um, you know, the, the 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 ability. I mean, think about the imagination that it took, you know, to write all of the books that he wrote and the short stories that he wrote. My wife, you know, was was looking. I, I've got the you know the complete short stories of Ernest Hemingway here, which is what I read from, which I pulled out of you know my my circulating bookcase, you know, my rotating bookcase up in the loft, you know, which is where I put. The authors, you know, that I tend to, you know, slip back out and take a look at their works again and again. Like that, there's one whole half of that, you know, one whole side of it, like that, that's Hemingway. And, uh, you know, she was looking at the size of this, you know, this collection of short stories. She was like, nobody writes that many short stories yeah. nowadays. Right. Like that. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's when you have to look at things commercially like that. You know what I mean? You know, the, the you know, Snows of Kilimanjaro, obviously, you know, published in Esquire magazine. I mean, there used to be a period in time, you know, when magazines you know, desperately were looking you know, for, um, you know, material, you know, especially the material, you know, from, you know, writers of the, the you know, the, the, the quality of Hemingway. And so, you know, that seems to have kind of fallen along the wayside. And so a lot of people have maybe given up, you know, and don't write as many short stories as maybe they used to back in the day like that. But uh, that's a little bit of a shame, you know, because, you know, the way I look at it is most writers are kind of like um, they're like gamblers at a racetrack and they look at stories the same way that gamblers look at horses. You know, they look at them and say, well, I don't know if that one's got a bottom on it. Will yeah. it make the distance? Yeah. You know, will it be able to do it? And, and well, just because an idea isn't a 400 page idea doesn't mean it's not a good idea. It may be a wonderful novella, it may be a spectacular short story. Um, and so you hate to see, you know, that opportunity uh, kind of fade away. That's a really good point. I'm, I'd be remiss before we go if I didn't ask you about Wine of Wyoming. And if, I mean, not one of his more popular short stories, but it is interesting that th there is part of Hemingway's biography that is about the West. And Hem oh. Hemingway's West would be Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. And that's what, um, and so as a, as a native, do you, what is your, uh, what do you think about Hemingway's uh, interaction with the West? Oh, I think it's spectacular. Obviously, you know, he had a love um, of the American West. I mean, one of his more famous, you know, uh, quotes is, is, you know, the Africa and Wyoming are the two most beautiful places, you know, in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with him. Like, I, I think that, you know, it's also, I think, in many ways, a landscape that mirrors um, himself as a writer. Um, because I think that, you know, whenever you discuss uh, Hemingway, you have to discuss it, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the aspects of, um, isolation, you know, of alienation. Um, so much of his work, you know, has to do, you know, with, um, that, you know, that, that isolation, you know, from self, the isolation from your fellow human beings and isolation from nature, you know, I mean, all of those like, and how do we find those connections? How do we make those connections and how do we, um, get them to last, um, that that speaks to that universality, I think, that he, he speaks to so well. Um, he loved it. He loved it here. And Wine of Wyoming um, is very telling. You know, it's very, very telling of Wyoming. If you give that that short story a very careful reading, um, it displays an awful lot like that. And uh, I'm of great hopes like that. I've been 
I'm fortunate enough that I'm going to be doing the uh, the keynote speaking um, for the International Hemingway Conference in Sheridan, Wyoming, uh, here coming this summer. You know, as long as you know things settle back down and and we're able to safely do that. You know, looking forward to it. And one of the things I'm hoping to do is to get Robert Taylor, the star of Longmire, to come in and actually do a presentation and do a reading um, of the wine of Wyoming. Oh, spectacular! Before I ask you, Craig, to reread the the sentence, maybe uh, to go back to the last sentence of the epigraph, no one has explained what the leopard was seeking at that altitude. What do we think he was seeking? Oh, well, I mean, if we're going to talk in, you know, the terms that I've kind of dictated here, you know, as far as like the isolation, you know, and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, alienation like that, I mean, you know, obviously we're all looking for something. We're all trying to find something. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that, that can take you to some, you know, far flung regions, not only frontiers, you know, geographically, but emotional frontiers, intellectual frontiers. And, you know, I think that it's just a, a wonderfully symbolic statement to start this off with. You know, here's an individual, you know, that, that's dealing with, you know, longing and, you know, remorse, confusion, nostalgia, all of these different things, you know, for, you know, rather, rather the negative or positive aspects of each one of those adjectives like that. But, um, but the ability, like, to to continue to search—that that's maybe the, the the hallmark of it all, right there. Fantastic, Craig. Maybe we'll close this by you rereading that wonderful <laughs> epigraph. I'll be delighted. Kilimanjaro is a snow-covered mountain, nineteen thousand seven hundred ten feet high, and is said to be the highest mountain in Africa. Its western summit is called the Masai, Nagaje Nagai the house of God. Close to the western summit, there is the dried and frozen carcass of a leopard. No one has explained what the leopard was seeking at that altitude. Craig Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on One True Sentence. You bet. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Michael Von Cannon and I also want to announce the publication of our new book, One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, which has an introduction by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. So please go to onetruepod.com for more details, or you can pre-order it at your favorite bookseller. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Yeah.